have had a number of interesting jobs in the past that require customer service. I have worked as a barista in a coffee shop. Did you know that? A bank teller, a Rite Aid ice cream scooper. My wife worked at the rival Baskin Robbins. I've worked as a clothes salesman. I have sold women's shoes. And I have worked as a personal train trainer, to name a handful. And the best organizations, the best organizations took time to train us as employees in how to interact with others. Right? You guys probably experienced the same. Right? And we were taught this to represent the company. We're taught how to approach the customer. We're taught what to say to the customer, how to help them to the door. And then if you're working in retail, maybe even how to help the customer to their car with all of their holiday shopping. Now, I appreciate how some of these companies were trying to create a company culture. They're trying to help us or help create a company culture. Now, at the end of the day, you know, let's be real. These are worldly companies whose goals are often for this world. And no matter what culture they aim for, you know, they often lack the power to truly reach what they aim for. But we can still appreciate, right, their desires. We can still appreciate their instruction, you know, their desire for the company to be caring, to be nice, to be friendly, right? We have, we ourselves, as we go around shopping in this consumeristic world, hopefully though not being merely a consumer, right, we experience the benefits of such companies. We appreciate them. Imagine then how much more we ought to appreciate the church, the church's goals, and the church's culture. The local church, as we have said before, is not of this world, but we are, in fact, embassies of the heavenly kingdom, where our goals for culture are God's very goals for us. And as we aim and labor for this culture, Christians possess, we actually possess true and lasting power, all by the grace of God, that makes our labor effective. Still sinful, yes, but, but nevertheless effective, all by the grace of God. With God's vision, with God's goal and God's power, God's people are to become a loving community that he himself desires us to be. Where our end is not the bottom dollar, it is not to gain customers, but in fact it is to see others safe and secure in the love of God. In our passage today, we are encouraged to create this loving culture here among God's people. We are encouraged to love one another, and from our passage we look at seven characteristics of Christian love. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we are in verses 9 to 16. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 16. If you're sitting next to somebody who looks like they might be new to the Bible, you can turn next to them and uh, help them get to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 16. We continue our series in the book of Romans, and this was a book, a letter written to the Roman church, Roman Christians, written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s A.D. And you can think of Romans in two sections, basically. The first section is Romans 1 to 11, where Paul explains the fundamentals of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. And then the rest of the book, Romans 12 to 16, basically 
he, here he deals with, all, with many implications that flow from this gospel. Given we have been saved by God's grace, what then are we to do? And here he actually makes a tie towards the church community. There's a huge thrust in Romans 12, 13, 14 about community and love. It is an immensely practical section where here he teaches us just how to think and how to live as Christians in community, changed by the Spirit of Christ. Today, once again, we look at how we are to love one another. Right? These are family matters here. He speaks about family matters. And here he lays out you know, the household goals, so to speak, about how God's children are to love one another. Romans chapter 12, I'll go ahead and read that. And I'm actually going to start with the beginning of Romans chapter 12. So look there at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the many, many members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then here's the beginning of our passage. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Love is crucial to God. God even tells us in his word that he is love, meaning that he defines love. God even tells us that his own evangelistic program for the world is Christian love. John 13, 34 and 35 basically says this, by your love, that is by one Christian's love towards another Christian, Jesus says the whole world will know that you are my disciples. So given that God is love, defines love, Everything he does is in love. And given that God's evangelistic program to the world is the love of the Christian in some ways, it's important then, right? We are best served to examine what this love is. And this is what our passage helps with today. Today we look at the love of the Christian and then the love of the Christian towards other Christians. And the next week we look at the love of the Christian towards their enemies even. So as we grow in our love, here as a church, members of First Baptist Church, let's look at seven characteristics of Christian love. Seven characteristics of Christian love. The first there is obvious. It's found there in verse 9. He says there, let love be genuine. 
or let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, now, some Christian scholars here understand the rest of verse 9 to further explain what he means by let love be genuine. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. You could make sense of the passage that way by translating it that way, and, and that is how I explain it. It's a further explanation of let love be genuine. Here he's talking about a big category of love. He's talking about loving all that is holy. Okay, so our temptation here, I think, for some will be uh, to read this moralistically. Yeah, sure, we're supposed to be nice to one another. But here we got to back up. He has this huge category of holiness, God's holiness, as we know from Romans chapter 1 all the way to now. He definitely is speaking about how there is a God who is over him, a God who is over all. This is big category love, loving all that is holy. And that's exactly the thrust, right? While he calls us to love, he also calls us to hate the right things. Loving the right things and hating the right things. Loving God and therefore abhorring all that is evil. And positively clinging to or cleaving to all that is good. Right? So he is not talking about general morality. Right? That is not the love of a Christian. The foundation of this love is love of God. The foundation of this love is love of God. It's loving God, his attributes, and everything, all that truly reflects him. So what does that mean? It means loving his word. It also means loving his ways. It means loving his children, his people. And so as we grow in loving God, we also grow to love like God. That's really important here as we understand this passage about love. As we grow in loving God, we are to grow in loving like God. Christians for a long time have put it this way. When you love God, you will love what he loves and hate what he hates. You, we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates, right? Abhorring evil and then clinging to, cleaving to all that is good, all that is holy, all that is righteous, everything that reflects him. Notice that this love is love with a backbone of God's righteousness. This is not, as D.A. Carson says, reminds us he's a New Testament scholar, this is not, as he says, mere morality. This is not a domesticated love that turns basically into niceness where you think of hugging big teddy bears and Instagram love hearts and fuzzy borders where we get that sappy sentimentality. According to the Bible, what is it that fills out this Christian love that we are to have, that you, Christian, are to have as you sit here in the pews and live life in community with this church? According to the Bible, it is nothing less than God's love for sinners. That's what is to fill out your love for one another. 1 John 4 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Now you see that right there in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we have this love filled out. Did you notice there that as we think about the gospel, we see that God's love is a love that initiates. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, right? Look at this love, this Christian love. Maybe you are exploring Christian community. Who is this Christ? Who is this God? God's love is one that initiates, right? So we know that God created man to be in a relationship with him. Man rebelled. 
God, though, sees rebels who rebelled against him, who had justly earned their own condemnation before him. And what does he do? Well, he initiates, he sends his eternal son in order actually that there would be peace. He makes atonement. We also know that God's love is merciful and gracious. We see this too in the gospel. Sinners had once again earned for themselves just condemnation underneath God. But instead of immediately judging, right, because he had every right to as a holy God, instead of immediately judging, he provides pardon for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God's love is also one that pursues and identifies. We see this in the incarnation of Christ, right? You're probably thinking of maybe, uh, you know, Christmas coming up. You see this in the incarnation. God's love pursues and identifies. The, the eternal Son of God traverses the universe comes to earth, the Son of God takes on flesh. And so we have the God-man identifying with man, though he was certainly without sin. We know, too, that God's love is resolved. Think about Christ as he lived a righteous life, right? He refused to sin. He resisted sin, even though he was genuinely tempted. He defeated sin and Satan. God's love is also one that sacrifices. And so the reason why Christ came is to bear the wrath that his people deserved. The condemnation that was for sinners, his people, Christ willingly, joyfully takes upon himself, all according to God's good and loving plan to save sinners. We also know, too, that God's love is righteous. It is righteous in that he doesn't sweep sin underneath the rug, as we might be tempted to do. Instead, he actually carries out judgment on sin. But praise God, right? It's not on us, but it is on the Son. We know that God's love is holy. His love is so holy, so determined that he gives us his very own Holy Spirit to sanctify us and purify us as he purifies the people for himself. We know, too, that God's love is a love that unites and secures. As God's wrath is satisfied, so he brings those sinners who repent and believe to stand before him in order that they know his blessing, in order that they know him as father. And so they are united with him. They have peace with him, access to his grace, adoption into his family, secure in the love of God. Uh, again, non-Christian, if you're exploring this, did you know even, believe it or not, that his love is even commanding? His love is even commanding. We should, you know, in today's age, we have this idea that love never tells us no or it never tells us what to do, which is completely false. Every parent knows that they have to, at some point in time, tell the children what to do. Tell the children to stop playing with knives or the electrical socket or they will die. And so Jesus does the same thing. He commands us. His love is commanding. It tells us to repent of our sins and believe or else we will face, we will bear the judgment of God for our own sins. He tells us to, he commands us even to turn to him and know the forgiveness of our sins, right standing with God. Christian, this is the love that has been poured into your hearts. In Romans chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 5, it actually says that we know, we know this love. Look there in verse 5. Hope 5.5. 5. It says our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know this love in the gospel. 
But here's the deal, as our, as our passage points us to. Knowing the love of God for us, God calls us to love other Christians as he wants them loved. Knowing God's love for us, God calls us to love other Christians as he himself wants them loved. You may know that Jesus tells us to love one another, right? As we just mentioned earlier, and by this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. What makes Christian love effective? such that the world will know that we are his followers, is not when we love in ways that we think we should love or love according to our own definition. What makes a Christian's love effective is because it is distinctly Christian. Christian love has the gospel of Jesus Christ as our foundation. It has Christ as our example. And it has, it has the glory of Christ as its goal. Look over to Romans chapter 15. Look over to Romans chapter 15. You see, this is the goal that he's going for. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. It says there, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Right, why is he talking about endurance and encouragement? Because we need that in our love as we do community with one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, right, right, you guys to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, that's unity, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look what he says there, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's not talking about the usher standing in the back, greeting people, welcoming people. He's talking about loving people with a brotherly affection. This is a love that he aims at. It is distinctly Christian. Knowing the love of God for us, God calls us to love other Christians as he himself wants them loved, all for the glory of God. This brings us to the second characteristic here. Characteristic number two, Christian love is family love. Verse 10, look there. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Right? When we read these verses, there is a temptation, I think, to just simply gloss over them. Right? Love one another, brotherly affection. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that like a thousand times before. Uh, we can tend to, I think, miss the true meaning and all of its implications, right? The words in these verses emphasize so much so family love, which is pretty incredible. Because you look around here and most of us are not family members, but yet what he's calling us to do is basically to elevate our relationships with one another as if they were family. It's incredible. That means when you come to church here, church is not something that you simply attend for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. But then all of a sudden, this is a family gathering. This love in Greek, by definition, is family, brotherly love. The Greek word there is Philadelphia, right? We have this city here in America, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Right? So this brotherly, this sisterly love is to mark the church. And do not just think that we, the aim here is to just treat one another as lovingly as possible. That's not, again, the definition here. Remember the nature of Christian love, the thing that makes it distinctly Christian. In the church, we are to want for God's people what God himself wants for his people. We are to labor to cultivate in God's people the very things that God himself wants cultivated. Our brotherly love takes on its cues from our Father as we are his brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It makes absolute sense. Again, just think about all the good things that God wants for those he saves. Think about all the good things that God wants for those he saves. He wants the lost 
to be found. And not just brought into the fold. He wants them into the fold where they know without a shadow of a doubt that God's love is present. That nothing will separate them from the love of God. He wants them to know their union with Christ. He wants them safe and secure in the love of God in Christ. And by his design, he assigns each and every single one of you to a post where we, knowing and delighting in the love of God that we ourselves have experienced, we pass out. We dole out. We are ready to stand at our post, or ideally we are to be ready to stand at our post, welcoming those whom he has called from all the different nations, ready to reassure others the love of Christ, his grace and mercy in forgiveness, the righteousness in judging sin on the cross, his power over sin and freeing us from the bonds and the tyranny of sin, freeing us from condemnation, the hope he provides in making all things new and the security in always being tethered to God's love. I hope you guys are getting excited knowing the job description that you have as you are to stand, each and every single one of you, at his post, welcoming all those whom he has saved. I hope that excites you. This makes me eager to stand at my post, greeting people, receiving others into the very joy that we ourselves know We are to be like a spiritual hospital, right? Imagine this, receiving and providing care for the sick in order that they might know healing. We are to be like a flock, bringing in lost sheep, still healing from scars and wounds from the wolves. As a family, we are to be brothers and sisters, eager, so eager to bring those whom the Father loves to his table and to know their appointed place setting where they know not shame of sin, but gracious honor, being a child of the Father. We are to be fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, eager to encourage the faint-hearted, eager to help the weak, and even teach and rebuke as necessary, being patient with all with the aim of restoration. I hope, friends, this is your prayer, that we would be a family more and more like this, where we are committed to brotherly love, outdoing one another in honor, it says no matter what ethnic background we come from, what social position we have, no matter the sick or the healthy, no matter the lowly in the world's eyes. And the way, friends, that we move towards this love as a community is by knowing what God wants for his people. That's the way that we move forward towards this love. Again, because we are to love in such a way where we fulfill what God desires of his people. We dispense the very love of Christ to those whom he has adopted into his family. Are you loving this way? Are you loving your brothers and sisters here in this church this way? Eager to dole out the love of God to God's children. If you're like me, I think we might say it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes, right? There are a lot of challenges to this type of brotherly love. I think one reason, I think that's one reason why he says what he does in verse 11. Look there, right? This brings us to point number three. This brotherly love can be challenging, and so he encourages us to fervency, right? Look there. This brings us to the next point here. Christian love is fervent, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Right, you know that if we have this job description that we are supposed to be loving, just imagine the guy, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever done this for a job, um, and given how vast my job pass has been, you might think I might have done this before, but I haven't. But you know those guys out there who are standing on the street corner with a sign, and sometimes they're really eager, right? Furniture store closing down, right? He's flipping the sign, he's excited. Everybody passing by knows exactly what they're supposed to do, and this guy seems really excited to, you know, generate business for this company. Sometimes, right, we're excited, but other times, right, we see the guy out there. He's sitting down, flipping his iPhone, not even twirling the sign. He doesn't even care, it doesn't seem like. Sometimes we're like that guy in relation to the love of God. And so he tells us, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. He basically says here, the first section there, do not be slothful in zeal. He basically says, regarding eagerness, don't hold back. That could be a legitimate translation there. Regarding your eagerness to love one another, don't hold back, friends. But why is it that that we hold back sometimes? Discouragement? Maybe bitter? Maybe we stand at our post and we're like, dude, God wants me to do this for others and I don't even get it back. Maybe we fear because we don't feel equipped. I can't stand there. Loving is definitely not my spiritual gift, which is not true, by the way. Maybe you fear because you don't want family dynamics to change, even here. I don't want to share my brothers and sisters. I don't want to share my God and Father. Because that disrupts my own, the, the way that I receive love. Or maybe you just simply are experiencing difficulty in this point of time, right? Where you struggle and just sometimes like, I want to do this, but I just don't think I'm up for it. Or maybe you're just lazy. (laughs) Reality in this sinful world says, right, fervency is hard for any number of reasons, which is why he tells us, right, don't be slothful, but be fervent in spirit. That right there is good news for the discouraged, for the bitter, for the tired, for people with issues, for sinners, for people who are lazy. That right there is good news, right? Almost anticipating such challenges to fervency. Look where hope comes from. It's a supernatural strengthening. Verse 11 says, be fervent in spirit. This word translated be fervent actually refers to a burning, a seething. So it's like he's saying be on fire by the Holy Spirit. And even if, even if uh, some of you guys might be saying, well, it's not entirely clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but even he's talking about the Spirit in general, like the human spirit, generally speaking, the way that we be, are, are fervent in the Spirit in general is through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us boldness to go about the ministry that God has given us. So this, uh, this is supernatural strengthening. Thank God that when our zeal for the Lord, right, when our zeal for others flags or it tires, here we are invited to rely on the strength of Jesus Christ, right? We have his spirit. Romans says that Christ himself or Christ has given us his very own spirit. So, friends, if you are tired in love, if you are tired or discouraged, imagine the heavenly strength available for you to draw on right now. It's his spirit that empowers and establishes us for a life of loving, loving him, loving the church, and even, as we look next week, loving our enemies. Just think about the very spirit that Jesus has given you, right? He gave us his very own spirit. 
In Romans, it's called the spirit of Christ. Just think about everything that Christ went through, right? Jesus identifies with us. We now have his spirit. And so we share very much in union with Jesus. Just think about the, what Christ went through. Christ's zeal could have tired, couldn't it? He knew that he would be crucified by the very ones he came to save. He knew, too, that in his very greatest hour of need, his disciples would abandon him, one of them even betraying him. Just imagine what he felt like. Imagine, right? He probably felt alone, of course, not sinfully, but he still felt alone, humanly speaking. He could have been tempted towards bitterness. We know that he experienced real temptation uh, from outside, though he was without sin. Maybe he would have given in to fear, not in a sinful way. But did he finally despair? The answer is no. He continued steadily walking the path of obedience, the path of joy, of self-sacrifice, joyfully doing the Father's will. Do you know why? Turn over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, that is, turn left, a couple books. You get to John chapter 16, you find Jesus here in his greatest time of earthly need here. 1632, 1632, right? He knows, right, that his own disciples will abandon him. Look at what he says there, 32. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Talk about a challenge to zeal and service to the Lord. Think about the temptation to discouragement to loneliness, to depression, to bitterness, to fear. But what does he say? He says, yet, right there, look at there. He says, yet, I am not alone for the reason is the Father is with me. Though abandoned by his friends, he knew he was always in the company of the Father. And so he fulfilled his mission. That's incredible. With the Spirit of Christ in us, that teaches us how to rely on the Father's presence and Christ, our best of friends. We can fulfill our duties here. We can embrace our post and the mission that he has given us. As we know, he has given us his presence. As Matthew 28 says, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So friends, if you find yourself holding back in your love for others, first and foremost, let me encourage you to turn to Christ and rely on his spirit. Secondly, talk to your friends in the church, those that you know love you, and just bring these things up. Ask them to help you think about why you are holding back your very own self, because certainly your Savior did not. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe you got a dashed hope that this church is just frankly not perfect. Maybe you got bitterness because the love you give out is never reciprocated. Maybe you fear. Maybe you're you're given to jealousy or tiredness, or maybe you just have this idolatry of comfort. Friends, your Christian brothers and sisters can help your heart find rest in Christ. In Him, there are answers to all of these things. They can help you know how to be nourished in Christ while at the same time desiring that your brothers and sisters do the same. There's going to be times when you might be discouraged and so then you've got to navigate, well, what exactly does it look like to love others? It might not look like the way that the guy over there, your other member, loves others. Just naturally, that might not always be the case. And that's okay. But to know exactly how to do this, how to challenge yourself, you've got to talk to others about this so that we can help encourage you to look to Christ, 
and then also know how to navigate your life circumstance. And hopefully in talking with others, your hope can be kindled, not in a perfect church or in maintaining your own comfort, but actually in the final community, right? The final community that Christ will one day bring about. Bring about. That is the community that is perfectly free from sin, full of love. And that brings us actually to the fourth characteristic. Love is hopeful. Christian love is hopeful. Look there in verse 12. He says there, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This hope we've already looked at in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5 too, this hope is the Christian's hope of the glory of God. Hope of the glory of God, which we also just saw in Romans chapter 15. It's a hope of that great time when Christ establishes his rule and reign for all to see to the ends of the earth. It is necessarily a hope in what is to come, which we genuinely know now, at least in part. But then we will know in full. It is necessarily a hope in what is to come, a hope in the return of Jesus Christ to establish that great city in all of its glory, unhindered by sin and evil, but full of the peace of God in its fullness. Friends, hoping in that city and the fact that we are to hope in that city reminds us that we are to have a realistic expectation of the here and now, doesn't it? And and that affects the way we view us and the way that we view the world. The world next week, us now. This tells us that we are, at the end of the day, though we are heavenly outposts of that great city, we are but earthly outposts of that great city, meaning we are still sinful. We're still sinful. Christians are not perfect and will not be until that great day. And that helps us make sense of the here and now. Though the church is to be a loving community, it cannot, it cannot bear the weight of all of your hopes. It can't. If you think about it, right, Jesus in the New Testament tells churches how to carry out church discipline. That's evidence, right, that we can't, that the church today cannot fully bear the weight of hope. The New Testament also teaches us that churches in this day, in Revelation, for example, they lose their first love. They aren't as loving as they could be. They tolerate false teaching and therefore are judged. We could, we could go on. But friends, this should never cripple our hope in the glory of God, in what he is doing here and what he will do then, right? The temptation is like, okay, you're saying that, right, we'll never really fully experience here what we will know then, and so therefore, why should we try? Well, Paul actually doesn't have that category. He says, no, throw your weight into it because no matter how dim, the church is still a true representation of that final community. And so therefore, we can actually lean into it. We just need the right expectations. They should never cripple our hope in what goes on here and then the final hope of the glory of God. He is, in fact, making all things new and will bring it all to completion at the day that he has determined, right? That strengthens zeal. That is what strengthens zeal. Because in this dark world, the church, filled with the Spirit, having the light of Christ, possessing the light of the gospel, the church, therefore, burns bright. Though the church is filled with sinners, at least we are sinners who know it. We are to be sinners who turn from it, who ask forgiveness for it, who seek reconciliation with others who sin against us. 
We are to be those who give grace to those who have sinned against, against us. So while this gives us right expectations to others here in the church, obviously it gives us right expectations to the world. You see there, if you turn back to Romans, <clears throat> he actually says there in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And then he'll go on in the text that we look at more for next week, talking about how we aren't to avenge ourselves and how are we to interact with those who persecute us. Right, this should be our expectation that we're going to have to endure affliction, tribulation, and persecution, and therefore be prayerful that our love would continue to burn brightly. He tells us there, right? Be constant in prayer. So with our eyes to Christ and final glory, we can persevere in service to God. This is our fifth characteristic here, or sorry, this brings us to our fifth characteristic. After speaking about this, he brings us to the fact that Christian love is sacrificial. Christian love is sacrificial. Look there at verse 13. He says there, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We just spoke about persecution. Remember, Paul writes this, this letter to the Romans after the Roman emperor had already exiled Jewish Christians and others for 10 years. They come back to Rome, right? You can imagine what they return to. Who knows what kind of stuff, right? Their earthly material stuff they still had how crucial then it is for the church to be told contribute to the needs of the saints and exercise hospitality by the way if you're wondering saints just means the holy ones right there's a reference to all christians all christians all christians have been sanctified or set apart for god's holy use now in relation to how we apply this to our situation, right? We, we, we know that we're not in this same situation where, where we are experiencing this same persecution. But nevertheless, the encouragement still stands. We are to be helping others in the church regarding their right, super practical needs, as well as seeing that brothers and sisters are safe and secure through the ministry of the Christian community. And in fact, you realize that exercising hospitality and contributing to the needs of the saints actually moves towards making sure that our brothers and sisters are in fact safe and secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his community. The New Testament gives us various examples of how this happened. We can look at the book of Acts. Christians were sharing all things as necessary. Certainly not at every time, but they did in certain times. In the book of 1 Timothy, the widows who were truly needy were put on a, the church's list so the church could officially care for them. But how do we apply this to our body? this contributing to the needs of the saints and exercising hospitality. Well, friends, individually, I would encourage you to always have your ear to the ground in order to know who is truly in need. Just pay attention. So the question that we have for ourselves is, do we even know those who are truly in need and the needs that they actually have? Is it financial? Is there any ways that you can help them? Next, I encourage you to think about how you can proactively contribute to their needs. So think practically about how you can actually contribute to their needs. Now, this might mean uh, making a new category in your personal budget that hopefully uh, you think is wise to use. Right? So maybe in your budget, you actually have you set aside a certain amount of money that is to be used in service to others. Right? So maybe you budget spending more on groceries. So, therefore, you can have people over who are genuinely in need, right? That makes sense. Maybe this means thinking about regular financial gifts to those who might be in need of it. 
because of some certain life circumstance. And some of you guys know this kind of hospitality. I can think of one person now who is known to just take people out and give them money. Like that's super encouraging as he contributes to the needs of the saints. Of course, this comes at a sacrifice. Maybe that means you're not aiming for that perfect house and that perfect neighborhood, but instead you just make the conscious decision. Yeah, well, given, given what God has given me, I want to share it with others, and that might mean moving to this other neighborhood or choosing to uh, rent in this other place. In terms of a church body, we looked at individually. Now we look at a church body, First Baptist Church. If you hear that someone is genuinely in need, let me encourage you to come and talk to the elders. Come and talk to the elders. In certain circumstances, in certain circumstances, it would be better for the church as a whole to come alongside members and help them financially, which is something that we have done in the past, something that we continue to want to do in the present. And if you find yourself in need, if you find yourself in need, come and talk to the elders. Please come and talk to others. There are so many situations in life where uh, that could lead someone to be in need. Let me encourage you to come and talk to us so that we know and so that I hope you know that we are eager to help in ways that we can and ways that we think are appropriate. That might mean financially helping you, members of the church. That also might mean, in conjunction with helping you, saying, hey, I want you to go and meet up with this brother or this sister so that you could create your own budget and therefore learn to manage your money better if you need it. Right? It's just simply what it means to shepherd people here. We're trying to have people be responsible with all of the means that God has given us. So definitely come and talk to the elders. A word on hospitality. You know, even though we aren't in the same situation, behind this call to hospitality is having a heart that wants to see our brothers and sisters, once again, safe and secure in the love of Christ. And that comes in different avenues, and one of them is hospitality. So let me encourage you, practically speaking, right, to just brainstorm about how often you can have people over into your home to offer hospitality to them. Back then, you know, in this day, people would travel, Christians would travel, and hotels were known to, sh to house shady characters, right? That might not necessarily be the case in this day and age. So in terms of applying hospitality to our situation, this, I think, means here opening up our home and offering hospitality to others. And you don't even need a home, right? You don't need a kitchen to offer hospitality to others. You could take people out to eat. That's offering hospitality, taking out those who are genuinely in need. And even where you have a kitchen, you don't even need to use your kitchen. I got an example the other day. Uh, David and Haven came over and brought food for us. Thank you very much, guys. And what they did was use their own resources their kitchens, their pad thai noodles to serve us. And I'll tell you, me and Melanie were so encouraged by that because that meant, oh, finally, right? We, by we, I mean Mel, because I don't know how to cook. Mel didn't have to cook at, at that particular time, but instead David and Haven showed up and they helped us. And we had a good time. We enjoyed I mean, they even took into consideration my dietary issues and, you know, they're bringing over a vegetarian pad thai. We get the chance to talk about uh, the service and how that encouraged us, right? You guys could do that. So if you're a college student, you're thinking like, well, I don't really know how to do hospitality because I eat at the dorm. Like there's tons of different ways. One of them might include taking home extra desserts and bringing it over to uh, Jason's house or something. <laughs> I'm lost now. <laughs> so as we seek to offer hospitality, let me encourage you to think about your resources, your homes, your kitchens, 
your bedrooms and couches, your money as given to you by God in order to not only provide for yourself, but to provide for his other children, creating and strengthening the bonds of brotherly love here in this church. You can just imagine the joy of a father or a mother who sees the, the children sharing of resources that have been provided to them. But of course, support is not limited to things financial. Look at verse 15. Support is also clearly emotional. This is the sixth characteristic. Sixth characteristic. Christian love identifies with others. Verse 15, it says there, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, some of you guys are getting all excited about the last characteristic. You're all opening up your planners. You're going to start scheduling all the doing. You high achievers and doers. You got your to-do list, calendaring hospitality into your life. Well, friends, verse 15 reminds us that in our doing, we should also be aiming at identifying. This pushes us to loving others with actually the purest of motives. Oftentimes, it's not easy. Imagine when your sibling received a present that you thought was better than the one that you received. Or a coworker received a promotion that you thought that you deserved. Isn't it interesting how quick this grumbling and complaining arises, the comparison, the bitterness, and the, the ugliness? At a church that I was at previously, one of my friends, he shared this example of how uh, he and his wife had found out they were going to have a child. They went to the doctor. They were trying to figure out how to tell their three-year-old son. And they're in the car driving home from, I think, that appointment or from something. And they decide that that's the time that they're going to share this great news, that God had given them life again and that their family was growing not only from one child but two children. And so my friend just tells the child Justin in the bag, Justin, guess what? We're gonna have a, you're going to have a baby brother. And you know what he says? I don't want to share my toys. That's the first thing he says. I don't know, joking. And that right there is an excellent picture of actually what goes on in all of our hearts at some level. Justin broke out in tears. I don't want to share my toys. That's being selfish with the resources, right? Which we all know. We all know what that's like. Here, Paul encourages us to Love others with the purest of motives, even when we are discouraged. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It's because of our impure motives that we want to fight, but here we are to recognize that where God, our Heavenly Father, has blessed, we want to rejoice with others in their rejoicing. And where God has even taken away, where we go through trial and difficulty. We share in our brothers' and sisters' sorrows, learning to grieve and learning to trust and encourage people to trust the only true hope that we have in Him who is making all things new. Sadly, many think of, once again, church as something that you attend, but here when you're talking about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping and the sharing of rejoicing and sorrow, you see this is family love here. And I thank God I can genuinely say that I see this going on here. I genuinely see this going on here. And we, sh we should be encouraged, but I pray that it happens all the more. You realize that we are a church that's constantly changing. And we got new brothers, right? God is calling others into our fold. He desires to save more and add to our, uh, add to our fold. And so that does actually disrupt some of the family dynamics, which then makes us wonder, like, are we standing at our post ready to welcome all who call upon the name of the Lord? Or is our heart more narrow than that? We want, we should pray that our hearts, in fact, would be as wide as God's, 
ready to receive those he himself and his sovereignty and providence brings to this church. I pray this happens all the more. And to do this requires that we walk after our Savior who welcomes, after our Savior who identifies with us in our rejoicing, even in our weeping. He desires to identify so much, right? You think about the gospel once again, that he takes on flesh. In love, he moves towards us, seeking to see us safe and secure in the kingdom of God. He bears our burdens on the cross, right? Thank you, Christ. Now imagine, church, if the 60-something of us here now, the members, 60-something of us members and others whom God is adding to the fold, we're seeking to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. What a family we could be and a glorious testimony of the glory of God to the watching world. Of course, to do this once again requires us all to be on the same page, that we have a Christ-like mindset. This brings us to our last and final point, characteristic number seven. Characteristic number seven, Christian love aims to preserve unity. Look there at verse 16. He says there, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. What he is getting at here is that each and every single one of us should be thinking in the spirit towards one another. The King James Version, the NASB, puts it this way, at least the beginning of the part. They say, be of the same mind toward one another. It doesn't mean think all the same thoughts. That's not what he's talking about. He's not really getting rid or throwing away with individuality, even though he speaks about us corporately. We can think differently, but here he's he's saying being of the same mind toward one another, which is translated in the ESV, rightly so, um, live in harmony with one another. And this, friends, the entire verse actually picks up what he started in 12 too, as he said, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind. Basically, the root word for mind in Greek here is used again, and a number of different times. This mindset is definitely one of humility and not pride. But more fundamentally, once again, it's a mindset that lives in the reality of the grace of God in the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. Be of the same mind. It's living in the reality of the grace of God in the gospel. The gospel tells us that the Christian, no matter how high he is in society's eyes, or no matter how low he is in society's eyes, No one has anything to boast in at all. In fact, we are all lowly. All of our lives in Christ are by the grace of God. In God's mercy, he has freed us from condemnation and the power of sin. He has pardoned us. By his grace, he has brought us before his throne once again for blessing. In his righteousness, he has justified us. In his love, he has forgiven us and adopted us into his very family. So no matter what your situation is like, no matter what status you have, Christian, all of us are spiritually lowly before the eyes of God. There is nothing to be proud of in and of ourselves. So you see how ridiculous it is, actually, to fulfill our family duties and privileges to one another with self-righteousness in the family of God, in pride or judgmentalism, with partiality, ministering to some but refusing to minister to others, whether intentionally or even unintentionally. It's also kind of crazy in light of the grace of God to minister only to the rich and not to the poor. 
only to a certain ethnic group and not others, only to the educated and not the uneducated, only to the healthy and not to the sick. To exercise a supposed love like that out of pride is the exact thing that Paul condemns in the book of Romans to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Having a a love that shows partiality fails to love others in a way that God wants them loved. It fails to cultivate the same things that God wants cultivated in his children. But having the same mind towards one another, one that is eager to love, eager to outdo one another in showing honor, eager to bring in others, no matter their background, no matter how lowly they are in the world's sight. Having that same mind toward one another, we are to bring people into the Father's table where He has set them a place setting. After all, as Martin Luther has said, we are all mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. With every member having this mindset toward one another, we will be a community that devotes ourselves to seeing brothers and sisters safe and secure in the love of God, knowing Christ has freely and fully given himself to us for the same. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. To conclude talk about Christian love is to talk about Christ's love for sinners. To aim for Christian love here in the pew is to aim for Christ-like love to be known here amongst our members. So as we labor and pray that our love here in this church takes on these seven characteristics of love and all the others that are in Scripture, let us remember that in God's call for us to love one another is a call to love like He loves, to love His children as He wants them loved. And may it be our prayer that this local church and every local church that God brings you to in the future would reflect more and more of that heavenly kingdom where Christ's reign and love would be made known and seen by all. And thank God. Yes, sometimes the church wrestle in sin. Sometimes our fire doesn't burn so brightly. But friends, compare it to the darkness of the world. And thank God that we all have the opportunity to put our hand to the plow our hearts towards one another's to make our love, the love of Jesus Christ, burn all the brighter so that we would be a faithful display of his glory to the watching world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that without the gospel, without Christ come to take on flesh, to die on the cross for sinners, we would be lost looking for our own definition of love. Loves, different types of loves and definitions of loves would come and then go. In fact, they would be wrong. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us that you gave yourself on the cross so that we would be safe and secure in this very love, in forgiveness of sin, in right standing before you. Lord, we pray that those here who are interested in love but who don't know you, Lord, we pray that they would turn from their sin and believe on you and so know this great and marvelous love, this love that you lavish upon those who turn from their sin. And Father, we pray for us as a church, 
Lord, we pray that indeed we would see this job description, not be discouraged, but trust that we have the Spirit of Christ in us that helps us fulfill these things, though not perfect, but we put our hands to the plow and that we would arise and take up this job description so that the fame of your great name would go to the ends of the earth and all those around us would know that we follow something. We follow a person, the God-man, who loves perfectly, whose love is out of this world, not sinful, but righteous and good and holy. We pray, Lord, for the bonds here in this church, that we would have right expectations of them, that you would strengthen them, that we would be quick to cover over offense with the grace of God and the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. And we pray, Lord, that our love would be strong just as strong as Christ's love for us is. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.